0: I would you turn your Bibles, please, uh, to Titus chapter 3, and uh, we're looking this morning at verses 3 through to 8, but let's just read from verse 1 to remind ourselves uh, of the context of so Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Amen, and we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. You know that in the letter to Titus, Paul gives some very practical instructions on how the Christian is expected to behave in the church, chapter 1, in the home, chapter 2, and in the state, chapter 3. And intermingled with that practical teaching, Paul gives doctrinal instruction And uses that doctrinal instruction as the motivation to implement that practical teaching. Now that doctrinal instruction centres on the gospel itself in the book of Titus. And of course there's no uh, better motivation for godly living than a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of the gospel of grace. We see that in chapter 3. In verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds Titus that Christians are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And then in verse 3, he uses a word that unfortunately is missing from the NIV. For, that's an important word, an important word in the text. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. This is the reason why we ought to implement this practical teaching. In verses 3 to 7, in one long single sentence in the original, Paul gives a condensed but comprehensive account of salvation. And that is the motivation that he provides to implement the practical instruction that he has just given. The whole sentence hinges upon the main verb there in verse 5. He saved us. He saved us. And what we have is perhaps one of the fullest definitions, expositions of the doctrine of salvation in all of the New Testament. And it was, as verse 8 tells us, one of those sanctified cliches, uh, trustworthy sayings, memorized statements that circulated in the early church. He saved us. That's why we should live a godly life, says Paul, and be obedient to rulers and authorities. My people don't like that word, save today. It's a conversation stopper. Drop it into any conversation and people will blush. They'll turn away or even become angry. But Christianity is essentially a religion of salvation. And to remove salvation from it is to leave it as an empty shell. Now what I want to do this morning is just go through uh, these um, words and pick out seven statements that define for us the doctrine of salvation notice first of all then the need for salvation uh, look at verse 3 for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy Hated by others and hating one another. Here Paul begins his definition of the gospel by diagnosing the condition of man. And it's an unsavory picture. The sad condition and behaviour of the human race. He tells us first of all we are depraved. Intellectually depraved. He says we were foolish Ignorant, without understanding, that's to say, without understanding the things of God in the sense of Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, that the God of this world had blinded our minds that we couldn't see and understand the great things of the gospel, the great truths of the gospel. So we were depraved intellectually, depraved morally. He says we were disobedient, even though we knew right from wrong by the conscience that God had given us and by the law that he had revealed to us. We sinned continually by going against what we knew to be right and true. So we were depraved intellectually, foolish, depraved morally, disobedient. Thirdly, depraved spiritually. We were led astray, deceived, says the New international version we were led astray by the one who has uh, blinded the minds of those who believe not who were told in revelation has deceived the whole world so man is depraved intellectually he's foolish morally he's disobedient and spiritually he is led astray the fall of adam In the garden, affected us morally, intellectually, and spiritually. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. So we are depraved, corrupted by sin in every aspect of our being intellectually, morally, and spiritually. Secondly, we were enslaved. He continues there in verse 3 we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. The Authorized Version says, serving divers lusts and pleasures. But it is from the Greek word doulos, which means slaves. We were enslaved to sin. We were held prisoner by sin, by pleasures and passions. We cannot break free of our habits and the inclinations of our hearts. Stories told of a, a man who committed murder in Belgium. Uh, during the Middle Ages. And he was uh, sentenced to life imprisonment and it was in a a rural area. And so they they built a a little one-room prison for him with one window and a door. But through time the door rotted and fell off its hinges. But this man was a very fat man. And all they had to do was to feed him, Uh, give him delicious food. And he maintained his weight and was unable to pass through the door. In other words, he was held prisoner by his own appetites. That's what Paul is saying about our condition as non-Christians. We were enslaved, addicted to sin, held prisoner by sin, by our appetites for sin. We were sinaholics, As Wesley says, we were fast bound in sin and nature's night. So the non-Christian is depraved, he's enslaved, and he's at enmity. In the middle of verse 3, we're told, passing our days in malice, envy, hatred by others, and hating one another. This sin then affected not only ourselves individually, but our relationships in community. It led to fragmentation and hostility, the breakdown of friendships, of marriages, of families of communities the consequence of that sinful condition was to disrupt and destroy our relationships with other people this is our condition if you're not a Christian this morning this is God's diagnosis of you you're depraved intellectually morally and spiritually you're enslaved you're held a prisoner to uh, sin and you're at enmity hating and being hated and you need to understand that this is God's diagnosis of you. We worry sometimes by what other people think about us, but this is what God thinks about us. And this is why we need salvation, because of our condition. And because of that condition, we couldn't save ourselves. So the need for salvation. Secondly, I want you to notice the source ...of salvation in verses 4 through to 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Now notice that very carefully. He saved us. We couldn't save ourselves. Salvation is to be found only in him. It was only when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared that he he saved us that appearing undoubtedly refers to the coming of the lord jesus christ he is the personification of goodness and loving kindness the embodiment of goodness and kindness and our rescue our salvation depended on his coming into the world when everything was pitch black And hopeless, God's love burst into this world in the person of his son. And he is the only saviour and hope for mankind. Notice verse 4 begins with the word but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our saviour appeared, he saved us. This is one of those great buts, those monumental buts, those uh, life changing buts that appear in scripture. We were depraved, enslaved at enmity. But, but, he did not leave us in that uh, condition. He appeared to save us. Plunged in a gulf of deep despair, we wretched sinners lay. Without one cheerful beam of hope or spark of glimmering day. With pitying eyes, the Prince of Grace beheld our helpless grief. He saw, and oh, amazing love, He flew to our relief. He is the only way. He is the only source. He is the only grind of salvation. He saved us. Our salvation, Paul says, is not to be found in ourselves or not to be found uh, in religion. It's to be found outside ourselves. It's only to be found in Jesus Christ. You've got to give up all hope of saving yourselves. You can't do it because you're enslaved to sin. And the only source of true salvation, as Peter said to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. He is the only source of salvation. The need for salvation. The source of salvation. Thirdly, notice the basis of salvation. If he is the only source of salvation, on what basis then does he save us? On what basis is salvation procured? Well, look again at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now, what could be clearer than that? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We were rescued, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we merited it, but because of his mercy, his kindness, and his love towards us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's a useless thing. It can never establish us before God. But he poured out his love and mercy upon us. One commentator, Douglas Millen, says the first casualty of the gospel will be a person's sinful pride and self-righteousness. The only basis and ground of our salvation is the mercy of, And the grace of God. Mercy, verse 5. But because of his mercy. Grace, verse 7. So having been justified by his grace. That's the basis of our salvation. God's mercy and God's grace. Remember the distinction between those two terms. That God in his mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. But God in his grace. Gives us what we don't deserve. So the basis of our salvation then is mercy and grace. Our sin deserves the judgment and the punishment of God. But he forgives us. But not only that, positively, he gives us eternal life. As B.B. Warfield says, our salvation is a pure gratuity from God. So the basis of our salvation then is mercy and grace. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, verse 5, and we have been justified by his grace. Verse 7, the need for salvation, the source of salvation, the basis of salvation, the mercy and the grace of God Fourthly, notice the means of salvation. How then does he actually work this salvation in our hearts? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. The method by which God saves us is through the operation of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit washes us. All our guilt and sin and defilement is washed away by him. And that washing is accomplished by regeneration and renewal, or rebirth and renewal. That God plants through his Holy Spirit new life into us. He infuses life, he implants life, he imparts life to you. It's like a, a new beginning, a new start, a, a, a fresh beginning. That is like being born again, born over again. And the new birth, the doctrine of the new birth, is central to the New Testament. Jesus uh, taught it, Paul mentions it, Peter mentions it, and even James mentions it. And it carries the idea of being uh, being given a a new life, uh, a new start, a a new beginning. God doesn't repair us uh, when he saves us. He renews us, he recreates us. If any man is in crisis, Paul, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Volkswagen have updated their model, Golf, uh, over and over uh, again through, through the years. And one of their advertising slogans was, uh, the Born Again Golf, that the, the, the Golf was born again. And when I inquired about what was different about the new model as to the old model, they said, well, it's slightly longer and we have put in uh, different headlights and we have this and that. But it was basically the same car. That car wasn't born again. To be born again is to be a, a new creation, it's to have new life pumped into you. It's, it's regeneration, it's recreation. So do you see what Paul is saying? This salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart by which God plants new life in us and cleanses us from our past life. Right? People don't like that term born again, do they? It's a bit like that term saved. Well, born again is an inner right dogma. People would rather blur the edges when it comes to Christianity. They would rather be a bit more fuzzy about it. But Jesus makes it clear that unless a man is born again, he cannot see and he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Because salvation is a gift of the Holy Spirit to the human heart. And if you're not born again, you will wish that you were never born at all. I have to ask you then, have you received the Holy Spirit? Has he changed you in the way that is described here? Has he washed you? Has he planted this new life within you? Remember the words of Jesus. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask him. Plead with him. Seek this cleansing, this regeneration that comes from the Holy Spirit, this new life that is to be found in him, this new beginning, this new birth. And don't rest until you know that you're born from above. That's the means of salvation. The need for salvation, the source of salvation, the basis for salvation, the means of salvation. And then, uh, fifthly, the the blessing of salvation. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Justified by his grace. That's a a great biblical word, justification. Now remember, justification is not just as if i had never sinned. It's not the the removal of sin. It's an imputation of righteousness. It's what the reformers called the great exchange where our sin is counted to Christ and he bears it away, he takes it away at the cross. But his righteousness is given to us, that we're clothed in that righteousness. It's the two way transaction, my sin to him, his righteousness to me. That Christ not only died a substitutionary death to take away sin, but he lived a substitutionary life. And that we are clothed in his righteousness. Justification is a term that's borrowed from the law courts. And it means that he declares us to be righteous. It's a verdict that is passed uh, 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 about us. It's not how God sees you. It's how God considers you. So imagine for a moment that uh, you were heavily in debt. A debt that you could not pay. Um, maybe millions and millions of pounds in debt and there was no way that you could retrieve yourself out of that situation and this great benefactor comes and he not only takes away the debt but he fills your account with credit with millions and millions of pounds so that you are fabulously rich Well, that's what happens in the gospel our sin is taken away but righteousness Christ's righteousness the beauty of his life becomes ours that's justification and that's the 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 great blessing of salvation that we're justified no condemnation no I dread Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine what righteousness? Divine righteousness. God's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Double imputation. My sin to Christ, his righteousness to me. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ own. What a wonderful blessing this is. If you're a Christian this morning, you're considered righteous in the sight of God. So the need for salvation, the source of salvation, the basis of salvation, the means of salvation, the blessing of salvation, and then the, the goal of salvation. You see that in verse 7. So being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. Since we are justified, that's accepted as righteous, counted as righteous in God's sight, we have this hope of eternal life. He's not going to turn us away. He's not going to cast us away in the judgment because we are considered to be righteous. And so we become heirs. Now, as far as I know, I'm not an heir. But uh, our boys are heirs. They're heirs of what small mine we, we will leave behind. Uh, perhaps by then we might have our mortgage paid and they will become heirs of that. Um, but that inheritance is only received when I die. But the Christian hope is a little bit more certain than that because the the, a will is is only operative when the testator dies, but our testator has died, so our inheritance is sure, is absolutely sure. That's the point made by the writer to the Hebrews that because the testator has died, our inheritance is sure. Let me read some verses from. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is kept safe in heaven for you. Why people say, well, you know, heaven can wait. The Bible tells us to wait for heaven. One moment in heaven, one glimpse of the blessed face of our Lord Jesus Christ will more than compensate for all the difficulties and the problems and the setbacks that we've experienced in this life. People say that's pie in the sky when you die. We say it's steak on the plate while you wait. You see, there is a a blessing even in knowing that you are an heir and that inheritance is sure. Matthew Henry put it like this, that those that are acquainted with God and Christ are already living in the suburbs of heaven. So sure are we of our inheritance that we're living in the suburbs of heaven. You know, we've missed our holidays this year and and we're looking forward to the break. We're looking forward to a holiday. But often when you go on a holiday, the stress breaks up and you find yourself arguing and falling out with the family. And one of the great blessings of of a holiday is just the anticipation of it, looking forward to it. There'll be no falling out in heaven. Our expectations will be exceeded even when we get to heaven. But there is a blessing in anticipating and looking forward to heaven. Spurgeon said on his deathbed, above, beneath, around, within, without, everywhere, it is heaven. I breathe heaven. I drink heaven, I feel heaven, I think heaven. Everything is heaven. Oh, what it must be like to be there. That's our great hope. That's the goal of our salvation. That's the end of our salvation. We're heaven bound. We are heirs of the hope of eternal life. Like everyone, we get discouraged and downhearted and disappointed with life. But unlike them, We have this great hope in front of us. This inheritance that is led up for us in glory. There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. That's the goal of our salvation. That we're heading home. We're going to heaven. We're entering into our inheritance. So the need of salvation, the source of salvation, the basis of salvation, the means of salvation, the blessing of salvation, the goal of salvation. And then lastly, the evidence of salvation. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul stresses these things that believers might devote themselves to God and be careful to do good works. That an understanding of the gospel provides the motivation that we need for godly living. And that takes us right back to our introduction, that we are motivated by a deeper understanding of the gospel to a deeper commitment to Christ. Now you see the point that Paul is making you're not saved by works but you're saved for works that good works are the consequence of salvation they're not the ground of salvation he has already said in verse 5 he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness to make good works the ground of our salvation is to put the cart before the horse The fruit of good works is the evidence of salvation. It's it's evidence of the root of salvation. It's it's evidence of a a living, regenerated individual. Now, says Paul, the way to encourage good works is to teach uh, the riches and the wonder of salvation. If you truly understand what God has done for you, how you have received mercy and grace, how you've been justified in himself. You'll not want to go back to your sinful habits of the past. Imagine as a teenager you were a secret smoker as some of us were. And there you are one night uh, puffing away in your bedroom and you fall asleep. And you, you wake up to find the room engulfed in flames and you see the blue lights flashing You hear the window breaking, and you see this fireman coming towards you to lift you out of danger, to put you over his shoulder, and to rescue you, to save you. And he carries you down the ladder to safety, and the house goes up in flames. You have been saved. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? You're not going to turn to that fireman and say, Well, I forgot my cigarettes. I need to go back for them. You're going to stay away from that which from which you have been saved. You're not going to return to the place of danger, to the thing that put you in danger. I have to ask you then, is there something in your life that he has saved you from? But still you return to that thing and you pander to that thing and you pamper That thing, that thing that you have been delivered from, a habit, a person, an attitude, an open sin. Do you see how incongruous that is? That if you keep indulging in that sin from which you have been saved, you need to question whether you have been saved at all. And you need to understand that the, the evidence of true saving faith is that you devote yourself to good works that you turn from sin and you turn to holiness now remember it's not good works that's save you look at verse 8 again we're told in verse 8 insist on these things so that uh, those who have believed in god trusted in god says the niv may be careful to devote themselves to good works it's not good works that are the ground of our salvation. But good works are the evidence of salvation. Good works are the evidence of true saving faith. And the question is not, are you doing good works? The question is, have you believed? That's the more fundamental question. Are you truly believing and trusting in Jesus Jesus Christ as the grounds of your acceptance before God? So if you pander to sin, If you tolerate sin, if you feel no remorse uh, over sin, there are two choices. Either you don't understand salvation and the true nature of salvation, or else you have never experienced salvation in the first place. The need for salvation, the source of salvation, the basis of salvation, the means of salvation the blessing of salvation, the goal of salvation and the evidence of salvation that you devote yourself to good works. Amen.